0: Folks, and welcome back to the San Juan Snowcast. It is Wednesday, October 20th, 2021, and this is episode two. For those who maybe missed it, my name is Chris. Nice to meet you. And I'm a ski guide and avalanche educator based out of Telluride, Colorado. And first off, I want to say a huge thank you to all the folks who have reached out with words of encouragement and support for the show. I'm doing this whole podcast thing as a community service because I want to help backcountry skiers and riders have more information on the snowpack before they start up the skin track. I'm hoping to provide weekly updates, with new episodes coming out every Wednesday, all winter long. Now, let me remind you that you should start every morning by logging on to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center website and reading the bulletin in its entirety. Those folks produce a daily weather discussion and avalanche hazard rating that every single backcountry skier should be tuned into. In fact, I'll be getting a lot of the information I put here on the pod from them, along with other local sources. But we also can't ignore the fact that the forecast is just that, a forecast. And no one person or organization can completely capture the breadth and scope of all that is happening out there in the mountains. I mean, have you looked at the North San Juan forecast zone on CAIC? It's huge! It's huge! Stretching from the Wilson Group to the west, all the way over to the San Luis Valley to the east, the North San Juans encompass a massive expanse of mountains. I'll be focusing mostly on the places where most folks ski in the San Juans. Red Mountain Pass in Silverton, the lift-access backcountry around Telluride, the Peaks and Meadows near Lizardhead Pass, and I'll do my best to give some love to the Durango crowd with a look at the La Plata's, Coalbank Pass, Molas Pass, and maybe even Wolf Creek Pass. Ready to nerd out on snow and avalanche stuff this winter? Sweet, me too. Well, let's dive in. The Snowcast starts now. Let's start things off with the state of the snowpack and a look back at last week's weather. Remember on October 1st when we all freaked out over the first snow? Well, that little dusting stuck around up high, and it made for some beautiful contrast with the golden aspens. Then we got another dusting the night of October 8th. This time, the snow level dropped to hit the passes, with Red Mountain Pass and Overpass Pass getting a little bit of accumulation. Then, we had our first big storm, which came in two parts. It dropped 8 to 12 inches on October 12th, and another 2 to 4 inches on October 14th. Since then, we've had high pressure and blue skies. Up until yesterday, when we got 2 inches in the valleys, and I'm betting maybe 4 inches in the alpine. The snow has melted out on most south-facing aspects and lower elevations, but it's still looking pretty deep in the cold north-facing pockets above 11,000 feet. I imagine that this will be the basal facet layer that our entire season snowpack will build on. And this setup is looking oddly similar to last season. Come on, how could I not put that in there? A few days ago, I foolishly took my skis out for a walk and strolled into the Alpine, where I found cold dry powder in the shade and moist melting snow in the sun. There was evidence of some wind scouring and a fascinating radiation recrystallization crust that I will definitely talk more about this season because it's pretty cool and it's common here in the San Juans. But other than that, sadly, there was just not enough snow to confidently rip skins and make turns. I know that over in Silverton, some folks have been getting their first turns of the season, but I'm sure it's still kind of rocky over there too. Although, how the heck does Silverton Mountain make it look midwinter deep every October? I mean, favorable flow and orographics do usually help Silverton get the biggest storm totals, but come on, those chest-deep powder shots have to be one-turn wonders, right? Hard to say. But in general, colder weather and shorter days are quickly ushering in the start of winter, which is no doubt my favorite time of the year. Now, before we get into the meat of the episode, I want to first touch on a few things that have been on my mind. What I love about snow is that it gives us access to parts of the mountains we could never touch in the summer, especially here in the San Juans where almost everything is utter choss. Skis and boards open the door to gliding through nooks and crannies out in nature we'd never walk through on foot. And that, I believe, is totally rad. But there's a problem here. The snow slides just like we do. And all of a sudden, this recreational pursuit that is fun, childlike, joyful, and soulful becomes deadly, devastating, tragic, and life-shattering. This is the truth about backcountry riding. The existence of avalanches and the fact that humans enjoy recreating where they occur creates this incredibly difficult duality within our sport. I think it's something that must be acknowledged early on for folks who are interested in the backcountry. And it's something I struggle with almost every season I'm out touring. And sure, it is totally true that you can ski in the backcountry without being an avalanche train, but there's a reason that the most popular runs in the resort are the blue squares. It's because they're usually just a little steeper than 30 degrees, which it turns out is the sweet spot for both enjoyable turns and avalanches. Riding in the backcountry in the San Juans is the practice of humbly tiptoeing through a world of high uncertainty and huge consequences, and we can't ignore that fact. My goal with this podcast is not to sugarcoat or glorify the world of backcountry skiing and riding. In fact, I hope my impact on you, the listener, is for you to develop a more cautious and curious mindset every time you venture into the backcountry. Because guess what? There's no gold medal for sickest kular skied, or even an award for the boldest near miss. And any risk we take out there is because we decided it was worth taking. Maybe it was for the turns. Maybe it was for our ego. Maybe it was for the gram. We can't forget that at the end of the day, if you ski in the backcountry, you choose to pursue, purely for your own reasons, a leisure activity that can get you seriously injured or killed. So why do we do it? Well, I'll let you answer that one for yourself. But don't forget to ask yourself that question. Because, as I'll talk about later on in the episode... New research shows that if you make decisions based on how they will affect your social status, you may be more likely to choose riskier behaviors in the backcountry or be swayed into doing something that you know could hurt or kill you. So take a moment before the season to look inward. And remember, it's not so much about how well you know the snowpack, but more about how well you know yourself and the people you choose to travel with. Heavy stuff, I know. But hey, that's just the truth of it. At least I know a way to change the mood. Abruptly. Funk break! Earlier in October, I headed over to Silverton for the Four Corners Snow and Avalanche Workshop. It was a solid event, and I want to throw a shout out to Ack, Josh, and the whole crew over at the Silverton Avalanche School for hosting the event and making it happen in person. This was the second year of Forsaw, and it's no easy task to get a bunch of people together in the times of COVID craziness. But I'm pretty glad they went for an in-person event this year. It was really good to see people, and it was a packed house at the Kendall Mountain Community Center, and the vibe oscillated from stoked for the winter to come to still sad about the winter that was. We'll dig into why soon. Forsaw included all the things you'd expect from a snow and avalanche workshop. There was swag. I won an Ortovox ski strap and an RPS battle with Aaron Rice after it somehow landed in both of our laps. There was trivia. Can anyone tell me what Fernspiegel looks like? We booed the poor weather service meteorologist who told us it would probably be a crummy winter, and everything ended with a ski movie premiere and some free beer. But most notably, there were a bunch of really fascinating and compelling presentations. The theme for the day was mountains, water towers of the West, and the narrative thread amongst almost all the speakers was that, yeah, we have a problem with water in the West. The presentations also showed that we are working on better ways to quantify and understand that problem through studying snow, but ultimately, in the end, we can't forget that downstream, millions of people depend on the water that comes from the snow that we spend our time playing in. The day reminded me that we recreate at the headwaters of a massive hydrological system, and we should be appreciative of every single flake of snow. The morning started with the Four Corners regional recap, with reports on last winter from Jeff Davis at the CAIC, Aaron Rice at the Taos Avalanche Center, Derek Splice in the Kachina Peaks of Arizona, and Chris Benson from the Utah Avi Center. The theme I got from all their talks was last season it snowed, then it avalanched, then it got windy then it avalanched again, then it snowed a little more, and finally, we skied a little bit in the spring. But there was more to it than that. Because later that afternoon, a presentation on two local incidents and the resulting search and rescue missions offered a somber reminder that last season was deadly, both here in the Wands and around the country. In the first week of February alone, 14 people died in avalanches across the U.S., And by the end of the winter, we'd set a modern-day record of 37 avalanche fatalities, numbers not seen since the days of mining in the mountains around here. 37 is a big number, especially when you remember that each number, that's a person who had a story and family and friends that loved them. And what I really appreciated about this year's foresaw was how so many of the presenters worked hard to humanize these statistics by telling us a little bit more about the people who we lost in those avalanches. One talk that really stuck with me was from Ken Wiley, a Canadian ski guide who survived a crazy avalanche incident up in British Columbia. Ken was guiding a group in the Selkirks out of the Durand Glacier Chalet when a trio of avalanches ripped down the slope they were skinning up, burying 13 people, including Ken, and killing seven. Miraculously, Ken survived, but he was racked with guilt about the role he played in the incident. In looking back, Ken saw many instances leading up to the incident when he was presented with a pair of choices. He could have gone one way or the other, with one path of decision-making offering an open mindset and an expanding number of options, and the other a limiting mindset. In fact, apparently, he had made up his mind to quit working for the guide outfit that same morning of the avalanche, but he didn't act on his decision. Instead, he chose to just work one more day. In looking back at his decision-making, Ken framed and named these paired choices, moments where two paths presented themselves and he had to choose just one. These are the pairs. Acceptance versus denial. Grace versus hubris. Connection versus isolation. Truth versus deception. Peace versus chaos. And this all got me thinking. When we show up to moments that matter, like decisions with high consequences, just how we show up is a choice. And that choice will influence whether we choose an expansive or limiting path of decision-making. In hindsight, Ken wished he had chosen the expansive path, one in which he trusted his gut and spoke up when something didn't feel right. Had he chosen to walk a different path of decision-making, would that have changed the outcome of that day? We'll never know. And the problem with case studies is that, in hindsight, all the red flags seem so obvious. But as Ken offered, maybe we just need to take more time to frame our mindset before we venture out into a world where accidents can and do happen. In processing the event, Ken wrote a book. It's called Buried. And if you're interested in learning more about his experience, I recommend you check it out. Another cool presentation that got me thinking more about how and why we show up in the backcountry was from Jerry Johnson, researcher and faculty member up at Montana State in Bozeman. In the last two years, Jerry's team has published three research papers, all with very interesting and I would argue cutting edge focuses. In one paper, Jerry's team dug deep into Ian McCammon's groundbreaking work on human factors. Remember that mnemonic, facets, that you probably learned in your level one course? Well, facets stand for the different traps that we can fall into as easily manipulated humans in a high stakes environment. They are familiarity. Hey, I've skied the slope a hundred times. It never slides. Acceptance. I better rip this line if I want to fit in. Commitment. Well, we came a long way to ski this slope. Why turn back now? Expert Halo. I love skiing with my buddy. She's a total pro and knows this place better than anybody. Tracks. Well, someone else already skied it. And scarcity. Well, if we don't ski it, someone else will get these sweet, sweet pow turns. Jerry's team argues that this model, which the Avalanche education community has largely treated as gospel and enthusiastically incorporated into our courses, is long overdue for a reanalysis and a potential reboot. We'll keep exploring the human factors that most influence our decision-making in the backcountry throughout this winter, so stay tuned for more on that. Jerry then presented on another paper that's come out of MSU recently, which looked at the terrain choices of skiers and riders who frequented the lift-access backcountry outside the gate of Bridger Bowl, and how those choices changed according to the avalanche hazard. They did this by using a time-lapse camera to take images of skiers on the slope, and then they crunched the numbers to figure out who went where and why. And guess what? Folks went farther and made more bold choices on low-hazard days. They reeled it in a little bit on moderate days, but still left the gate and skied avalanche terrain even on considerable days. Funny enough, most of the ski traffic on those considerable days, it was right along the ski area boundary rope, implying that the proximity to the rope line provides some sense of false security to the folks who go out on more dangerous days. I think this finding is extremely relatable to the lift access backcountry around the Telluride ski resort. Remember, just because you're near patrolled terrain doesn't mean you're on patrolled terrain. As soon as you go through that gate or duck that rope, guess what? You're in the backcountry. And while we're on the subject, how do we feel about the term side country or slack country? Should it be lift-accessed backcountry? Well, we could probably have a whole episode on that, so stay tuned. The last paper that Jerry spoke about, which I think is the most interesting, had to do with his research on why some people, despite having a ton of information, training, and experience, still choose to ski avalanche terrain that is likely to rip. Their hypothesis is that a lot of people exhibit risky behavior in the backcountry because they believe it holds social value. And... With skiing movies mostly featuring steep skiing and gnarly avalanche terrain, I don't think they're wrong. A good experiment to do on yourself is this. Imagine you just had a really fun day out with your friends. It was a bluebird day, post-storm, and you dug a pit, skied some lower-angle pal, but mostly kept things pretty mellow because of your analysis of the snowpack, the avalanche hazard, and your group. But then, you head for the bar. And over here, a group of peers talking about the gnarly line they bagged that day. Later, on social media, you see that they skied the big gnarly couloir and perfect boot-top pow. Now, ask yourself, how does that make you feel about your choice that day? Do you feel bummed about missing out on the gnar, or righteous in your conservative terrain choice? Maybe it doesn't affect you at all. Well, depending on how that scenario plays out for you, could mean that your positional preference is for more risky behavior. There's a reason why we idolize Jeremy Jones and Cody Townsend. They tackle the biggest and steepest lines and get away with it. But I'm going to borrow a line from Chris Lundy's latest article in the Avalanche Review. Quote, As a culture, we glorify risk. If you take risks and succeed, you're a hero. But if you take a risk and lose, you're a zero. In classic US fashion, we glorify risk, then scream that something needs to be done when someone dies taking a risk. We can't have our cake and eat it too. And social media just perpetuates this problem. I couldn't agree more, and I'm pretty excited to dive deeper into the concept of why we take risks, and to do a little self-evaluation of my own behavioral preferences before the winter really gets going. Also, I'm currently working on ways to incorporate the work done by Jerry and his cohorts into the avalanche courses I teach this winter. Okay, well thanks for listening to that lengthy recap of Forsaw. But before I sign off, I've got just a few more tasty knowledge nuggets to throw your way. Number one, CDOT and Weeson Avalanche Control installed a bunch of racks, that's remote avalanche control systems, along Highway 145 outside of Rico. These things are super cool. They're a tower that holds 12 charges and can carefully trigger slides without anyone being in harm's way. Two, Drew Hardesty of the Utah Avi Center revealed that a third of the people who read the forecast only read the bottom line. Don't be like that. Get informed and read the whole avalanche forecast. 3. Mackenzie Skiles of the University of Utah informed us that dust on snow can increase the rate of snowmelt by a whole month, and that in the San Juans, snowmelt is linearly related to the effects of dust in the snowpack. 4. Jeff Deems of the Airborne Snow Observatories is still flying around in a LIDAR-equipped plane to better map the depth of the snowpack throughout the West and he's giving his findings to water managers so they can make better decisions on dam releases and water consumption. Unfortunately, the jury is still out on when we can expect LIDAR goggles to help us see into the snowpack we're actually traveling on. Five. And lastly, beavers! Those little furry dam builders are actually integral to creating water storage in the mountains. Their dams help filter and improve water quality, and the slow release out of their ponds helps recharge our groundwater by letting water seep into the ground, not just flow downstream. Thanks, beavers. Okay, okay, that's it, I promise. That was a long one, and for those of you who are still listening, thanks for hanging in there. Hopefully you learned a thing or two, or at the very least, got the juices flowing on how to be better in the backcountry this winter. Music on the show is courtesy of the Free Music Archive, and performed by Juanitos. The name was just too good to pass up. I think they're a mid-2000s French retro funk group. Anyways, thanks, Juanitos. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, think snow.